the Yak Babies. Sex, presidents, and sometimes books. Welcome to Yak Babies, the only podcast on the internet sponsored by Crab O's, the Pinchy Tree. My name is Aaron, here with my personal pals, Brick. Hello. I'm uh, very glad not to be hosting anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Uncomfortable yeah, for me, I didn't like it. <laughs> I could sense a little stress in the hosting duties uh, when yeah. I was absent. We also have new Mainer Nico. Hello, yes, I'm more main than before. Downey's Nico, <laughs> increasingly Mainer Nico. <laughs> yeah. Flan- the flannel's grafting onto his body. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Personal pal Dave is on assignment. Uh, he is uh, going to the bakery. Today's episode is a return to our previous series about. What do we call it? Uh, Secret Santa books? Or I think we else? landed on Reading Roulette. Reading I think it roulette. should be Secret Santa, because that's exactly what it was. This will come out in February. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> like, months ago, we sort of gave each other assignments as like a sort of Secret Santa-style gift. We drew names out of a hat, and you had to assign a book to your personal pal that you think they would appreciate or be interested in, or even just punish if you wanted to, whatever, you, how you wanted to interpret that. Uh, we did one already. It was the Museum of Char, right? Library at Mount Library Char. Yeah, there you go. Close enough. That Nico assigned to Brick. Our second one is my assignment for Nico. I assigned him to read From Hell, a graphic novel by Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell, published from 1989 through 98, I think, or 97, kind of irregularly in, in various locations, first in a magazine called Taboo, then on its own. But most people probably know it from the collected editions that came out uh, from Top Shelf and have been around for a long time. So I want to start this conversation with... My position. I see this, see this going this way. I want to start by explaining sort of why I signed this book to Nico. I want to hear Nico's take on it. Then I want to he, uh, sort of like respond with my take. And then also, uh, as a bonus, Brick, you read this book too. I, I did. Excellent. You did secret homework. You wanted to some extra credit. There is none, of course. But you got to talk it. I want to hear your thoughts on it too. And I want to see what you thought as well. Okay, so my thinking behind ascending from hell to Nico was Nico had recently dove into some Alan Moore. He had watched the Alan Moore Masterclass or it's something something similar to that, right? BBC Maestro. Right. Basically Masterclass, yeah. Yeah. And I started reading, you read Swamp Thing, right? Yep. And you, we were to Watchmen before. Yeah, we read, that. it all started when we wa- read Watchmen, I think. And we di- right. we discussed that as a group. And you dug that, you liked Watchmen. Yeah, and I try also tried to read his book Jerusalem. Right. Yes. This which massive thousand page I not, novel. I did not finish it. <laughs> yeah. It's like a sort of fantasy novel about Northampton where he lives and Yeah. 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 And we'll, I'll I'll bring that up cuz I think Definitely having well read fun. like four of the big Alan Moore works, like I I have a pretty clear opinion of him now. <laughs> <laughs> Your picture of Elmore is crystallized. Yeah, for better or for worse. Or sure. Both. Yeah. So I sense because he 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 had uh, been on an Alan Moore kick for a while. I thought it'd be a good addition to his reading from how I think is competes with Watchmen for most people's sense of of Alan Moore's masterpiece. His sort of like his his opus. And I go back and forth between those two. I think that I mean I love Watchmen a lot, but this read, well, we'll get into it later. Eddie Campbell, the artist here, is uh, new to the podcast. We never talked about him before. He's a great artist and he's also a writer as well um his style is very different from other more collaborators like Stephen Bissett and Dave Gibbons and such but style perfectly suits this book I think to what, why don't you describe the style so yeah that's very sketchy part of it yeah you know sort of like almost like black etched. and white yeah yeah only uh, black and white you know looks very much like underground comics look like you know yeah. what the kind of c-o-m-i-x style it has a look almost like it was made with a ballpoint pen definitely yeah, yeah I think a lot of it probably was or whatever the equivalent is yeah but, yeah comparing this to the you know the sort of clean polished look of dave gibbons's art and Watchmen, you know, very different right. style obviously and very, and more detailed kind of like this is yeah. fairly detailed but there's also like the coloring kind of feels like he just took a paintbrush and like swept ink around yeah and it plays a big role i think like it evokes the feel very well i think mm. it's hard to read a lot of the time yeah it can be an intense, both emotional and also just like sort of the visual experience of it. it can be hard to, to sort of yeah. s- figure out what's going on there. So the reason why I chose this book was because it's historical or kind of it's historical fiction, I suppose. This is a, if you don't know, this is about Jack the Ripper. This is Alan Moore's attempt to sort of unify Ripper theories and to sort of produce his version of who Jack the Ripper was to sort of solve the mystery. But 
it becomes up, ends up becoming a lot more complicated than that. He's obviously interested in sort of grander things than just solving a mystery. And so the book gets into that, you know, in, in quite a bit of depth. Okay, so that's the spiel. That's why I chose it. Nico, what'd you think of From Hell? <laughs> uh, yeah, I haven't told you yet. So, yeah, okay. I have really mixed feelings about mm. it. I can, I can, I almost just like couldn't get through the first four chapters. Wow, okay. But, and then it starts to kind of pick up a little bit and... I can see why people really like it. Yeah. And also, I don't want to read it again. <laughs> so, like, I respect it. I thought parts of it were were brilliant. I think it I basically – so, I think it embodies the best and the worst qualities of Alan Moore's hmm. writing Yeah. In, in one go. So, I think the best qualities of his writing are it's – it's like a clockwork kind of thing. Like he, mm. he, and he talks about clockwork like a fair bit. And so like, it's full of these intricate little pieces and it, they all fit together in a very specific way that he is very conscious of. He's like in control of all of these different details, which yeah, for super another formalist, writer, like he's very yeah. much into like structure and form. Yeah. Yeah. And which another writer might kind of like let some of those details, you know, just be kind of more feel, but right. he has a, a, you know, a reason behind every single detail. Yeah. And that, like, when it gets to that crescendo and those things start fitting together, that's, like, I think his best part is when he can mm. kind of, he, he brings those things together. Yeah. One of the worst qualities, I think, of his writing is that he expects an unbelievable amount from his reader. Hmm. He, he requires a shitload of patience, a shitload of attention yeah. to be paid. And it's a lot of that I, I feel like is unnecessary. Mm. And I I think that he also doesn't, not all of that is rewarded as much as he requires from his reader. Right. I can you know? see that. So specifically like, yeah, so you mentioned briefly the publication history. So th this is, we, and we should also talk about like what it actually looks like. Yeah. So it's 16 episodes, mm -hmm. 16 issues. They vary from in length from like 10 pages to 60. Yeah. Some are really long. Yeah. So, so like there's, there'll be a 60 page chapter. There'll be a 20 page chapter. There'll be a 10 page chapter. There'll be a 48 page chapter. There'll be, right. you know, it goes like back and forth and, and as novels do. Yeah. Right. But yeah. <clears throat> uh, it, but, and it was also published over nine, nine right. years. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> yeah. So can you imagine reading like the first two episodes of this and then like having to wait another year to get the next one yeah definitely the so the first i think especially the the epilogue if you just read it makes no sense the the epilogue is is the oh, yeah. inspector and the psych psychic. the psychic yeah. you have absolutely no basis for who these people are they're like they're retired so 30 years later prologue the pro, yeah, sorry, the prologue, yeah, yeah. Well, it's actually both. I mean, it's, both. it's both, yeah, yeah, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, but the pro, the prologue first. So there's a prologue and an epilogue, and they, yeah. they mirror each other, and it's like the inspector and the psychic who worked on this case. And But you don't know who they are in the right. beginning. And and then that continues. So that, 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 I feel like, is one of his trademarks. And it's a trademark that I don't like. So mm. he, he introduces almost every single main character before he starts the story. So the right. first four chapters are just introducing characters. He does the same thing in Jerusalem. And that's that's the part that I can't get past. Is like right. so in Jerusalem, that introducing characters section is like each chapter is a new character. You're introduced to them when they're on their way. They're usually going somewhere. You don't know where they're going. You don't know why they're going there. Right. Uh it, it doesn't play into anything that you've read before or that comes after. And you basically just have to sit there and, and – but you also have to pay very close attention because that's right. – all that shit is going to come back up later. So – and and like in Jerusalem, that part is 100,000 words. It's a full novel right. just full of <laughs> these chapters of people that you don't know doing things that you don't – you don't really understand like what they want or what their goal is or any anything like concrete that you can – that you can see like where the – where we're going with right. it. Right, right. Yeah, so in From Hell, that's the first, the prologue in the first four chapters, I think, right. are just introducing characters. And then he starts to, to kind of unveil, like, how they come together. Yeah, I mean, so the, he tracks the story of the Ripper murders, but the murder doesn't happen until, I think, issue five or maybe even six or yeah, seven. It's pretty close to the Yeah, middle. It takes a while. And yeah, you're right, the first chapters are setting up who the characters are who are the you know the sex workers who were killed and they're kind of their little guild 
and then the, the inspector, the Masons, yeah, Willem Gull, the, the cops, Doctor, the Jack Prince, the Ripper. Yeah. yeah, all the various people who are involved. And you sort of see what they're, you know, the painter William Sickert, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and then yeah, all of a sudden, there's that really great sequence where Gull, the Doctor, who more says you know maybe but we'll get that later do there's even a question around that the ripper goes to his commanders like it's happening tonight and like no one wants to do it anymore but he's just like nope sorry i have to go kill a lot of people because i'm right. fully on like full-on crazy <laughs> it's a really haunting and sort of like oh god sinister part but that's what starts the sort of plot so to speak i guess yeah, yeah the, the first part is really just yeah setting up who is involved and, and what their various positions are before they collide yeah that so i it did lose me on those. I, I, I didn't like this book very much. Mm. I, I think this this is in the category of books where like I recognize it's pretty great, but I don't want to read it. Mm. Uh, and, and for me, it was that structural stuff you're talking about. Um, and then mm. it was also, as much as I like looking at the art in this book, I had a very hard time telling the faces apart. Yep. So the, the beginning mm. of the book is just throwing names and these like sketchy faces. And it's right. like... If there's two people that have a mustache and there's a bunch of naked ladies and it's like right. really hard to remember who's who, there's, and I think they're throwing all these names around. There's like 20 right. people, and there's yeah. four or five people, like four or five men who have a dark mustache, dark hair. They wear dark coats. They wear bowler hats. Like, yeah, yeah, and they yeah. wear bowler. And it's like, okay, is this that that this? If, which of these four guys is it? And you yeah. kind of have to. Yeah, like I felt like I needed to make notes. Another thing that that frustrated me a little bit is the stuff in the back is awesome. There's yeah. there's like a really nice like he sourced all this stuff in in yeah. the back that for every single chapter there's like almost a chapter of prose to explain what's going on, where this information came from, who these people are. Yeah. And I think I would have liked this book way better if that was somehow embedded in the chapters. Whether right. whether there's just uh -oh. a thing on the bottom, if there was footnotes or, you know, there's that there's that Watchmen edition that has yeah the yeah, annotations on one side and yeah. face page something like that because I didn't even I didn't even know that stuff was back there until like halfway oh, through the book and yeah. then I was like oh, okay but the, at that point I was not mm -hmm. I had lost the patience battle and I kind of was moving real quick after a chapter four. yeah so right. I I was reading that the whole time and that's in the first four chapters that was the only way I hung on was by looking yeah. in the back and saying oh mm. this is this guy this and then he explains like who that is and like what it's like oh this is Sickert and he's like not the Ripper because in the beginning you're kind of like okay which one of these guys is it this right is it this like Prince is it this Sickert guy and then it turns out to be <laughs> none of them yeah <laughs> they just like so we talk about Prince Eddie a ton in the first four chapters. He has a very small role to play in the rest of the book. Well, but he's like the he's like the inciting incident, right? Like his he's yeah. the reason why the Ripper exists. Yeah, right. Well, and Gull's stroke. Well, right, yeah. right. Gull's the Ripper, but Prince Albert, Victor Edward, whatever his like yeah. whole looks in a name. He impregnates allegedly impregnates a sex worker. Or just like a, a woman right. of low status, Good right? You get that allegedly in there, so we don't have two hundred year old slain. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I guess it is true that he did that. He did sort of father this like illegitimate <laughs> child, and the crown decides to cover it up so there's no scandal, and so they get the queen's physician Edward or William Gull to go like treat this woman, basically like disappear her essentially, right? Mm -hmm. And so he like destroys her brain with iodine, which is fucked up, mm -hmm. and drives her insane, and then the child is given away to her family and the prince is taken to like uh somewhere to go in hiding or whatever but then gull so william gull is like a mason he's been inspired by masonry he's like you know strive to work hard his entire life for like great works so it's a chapter two is this really brilliant i think bio of william gull right and he like he's his great desire is to do something that benefits mankind and to like focus all his energy on that and through rising into English society and becoming part of the monarchy and all this stuff and becoming a, you know, a, a respected surgeon. He also becomes a Mason and his true calling seems to be serving the, like the cause of Masonry and this like evil version of God they have. Right. Right. And so like, but and he then, also has a stroke and he hallucinates that he sees God and that, yeah, the, the that Masonic is God. What, yeah, yeah. That is what makes him decide to become Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Well, he yeah. believes that he has to do this thing to like save the world. Yeah. So that, that like to, but that short circuits for me, like the importance of Prince Eddie and like all that stuff, because it's like, well, what happens is he has a stroke and he has a hallucination. Right. But he had to be in that position. Yeah. He had to be like used as the instrument once to sort of have that 
that right. culminate, right? So it's like that's that clockwork thing you're talking about is that that tick of the gear has to fit right. for the next gear to turn. But the significant gear is Gull. He's the one we seem to care about. But without right. understanding Prince Albert Victor's situation, it would be less... I, but I see what you're saying, which is that it takes a lot of time to get there and you have to keep track of lots of names, but Gull is your, is your main guy, really. Right, but you don't know that when you're reading it. Like, I mean, I guess you do, you know, like, I think historically, like, now we know that that it's about Gull and, like, he's right. on the cover of mine. And, and But, like, when you're reading the book, you don't know which of them is the, the Ripper. I don't, right. I don't. I didn't have like a kind of, like oh this is this guy is the ripper it's just like oh here's another guy right and i think there's a way to structure that where it adds to each other like so mm-hmm. I, I think the the my my problem with that and it's the same as my problem with jerusalem is that it, it doesn't add to itself until like chapter 5 like mm, until, before right. then it's just like this person's story this person's story has nothing to do with the other one this person's story has nothing to do with either this person's story has nothing to do with any of them. This person's story is, and then later they all come together. Right. But it's like so. There's there's one chapter later also with uh, Montague Druitt, who yes, is the, the Patsy, the Patsy, the guy that they kind of pin it on, and you just see him at a cricket match. Yeah. And he's like just coaching cricket at a school or whatever. Right. And that's it. Yeah. And then like, <laughs> and then it's like a full chapter later where they're like. Uh, oh, we need a patsy. What, oh, what about this guy, Druitt? Right. And it's like, okay. But like, if we had reordered that and we'd said, what about this guy, Druitt? And then we show him at the cricket match. Then then that in, invests that scene with like more drama because you know what part he's going to play. And I right. feel like that is important with this kind of historical thing because otherwise you're just, you're just doing a biography of everybody on the street. Right. And then like later they kind of come together and yeah. So that's... No, I think I see what you're saying. I think that yeah. there's something interesting. There was a, a quote from Gary Groth that was on the Wikipedia page that I liked a lot. In his reading of the text, he says that... Where is it? Oh, yeah, here. The Ripper murders happening when they did and when where they did were almost like an apocalyptic, apocalyptic summary of the entire Victorian age. And it feels like Moore's interest here is less on the story of who the Ripper was and more on, like, how did society get here, right? Like, yeah. how did we get to this place? And seeing Jack the Ripper as like a avatar for like ushering in the 20th century. Right. Yeah. There's a part in the, in the appendix where he talks about like the 1880s, like the history of the 1880s and how there's like, that's when somebody first started flying and the first motor cars were invented and all this shit. And he says basically that it has a microcosm of the entire 20th century. Right. And that Jack the Ripper is the microcosm of, the 1880s so like right. in that way it expands and i i think that kind of stuff is really interesting yeah there's also the way it goes an almost fetishistic attention to detail with the architecture oh yeah uh, yeah and layout of, of london specifically like they yeah for for sketchy ballpoint pen drawings there's it, it's very attention especially when you go through the appendix and it's like right. hey, this is the whatever of this building and, and, and blah, this blah, is blah. this is what it actually looks like right yeah. like, okay and well, then and then Jeff- he has like the maps and it's like this is how it actually like i did this you can do this drive in a day yeah you can go see all these things and it's like okay like chapter five or six one of the two is like Gull goes on a tour of London with his driver, right. this coach driver, Netley, who's like his sort of like right-hand man, his kind of unwitting accomplice, I guess. And it's pretty witty. Witting, but like, yeah, <laughs> like simple. He's like, doesn't get on what's going on right. entirely. And Gull basically like his thesis, it's like an essay about architecture and London and how London is built on a pentagram and is like a trap for right. women. It's a trap. It's a trap to like a mystic trap by Masons and like, historical misogynists to depower women and like ensure the patriarchy. It's this like weird occult mystical kind of like exegesis and it, man really works. It's like, and then, so the best part from that chapter is that Netley, the driver, he's so Gull is telling Netley stuff. He's like, basically he's the narrator. He's a lecturer and Netley is the, the crappy student. Right. And then as it sort of dawns on Netley, what's actually going on, he starts to vomit and becomes sick. Like the power is real. It's really sinister. Right. 
Uh, oh, because there's that part where he's like, oh, you don't believe me? Look at those horses' yeah. bridles. Yeah. And it's like on every horse's bridle is are the symbols of the mace, mason. Right? Yeah, the, the sun three masons. God. Yeah. yeah. Like, and then he's like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah, like you've always been part of this. Like, right. you, it's like the shining. Like you've always been right. a caretaker. But you're right, Brick. Like that, those chapters, there's two. There's the one where he talks to his friend Nesbitt or whatever, Hewitt, I can't remember. Right. And then the, the chapter with the tour of the architecture where the drawings are like phenomenally detailed it's like draftsmanship right and it's just it's breathtaking but also overwhelming right so okay so there's there's actually a one of the epigraphs to to Mm. chapter four which is actually the fifth uh volume because it's prologue uh is from the 10 books of on architecture by vitruvius and i think this kind of explains a little bit of morris obsession with architecture and also his writing style yeah So it says, writing on architecture is not like history or poetry. History is captivating to the reader from its very nature, for it holds out the hope of various novelties. So you kind of think, like, that's what this will be. And to a large extent, it is. Like, there are these novelties. There are these things that you don't don't know unless you dig into the 1880s. So you kind of – so you're kind of thinking, like, this is going to be a history. Right. So then later, Vitruvius says – but this cannot be the case with architectural treatises because those terms which originate in the peculiar needs of the art give rise to obscurity of ideas from the unusual nature of the language. Mm. Hence, while the things themselves are not well known and their names are not in common use, if besides this the principles are described in a very diffuse fashion without any attempt at conciseness and explanation in a few pellucid sentences, such fullness and amplitude of treatment will only be a hindrance and will give the reader nothing but indefinite notions. Hmm. Therefore, when I mention obscure terms and the symmetrical proportions of members of buildings, I shall give brief explanations so that they may be committed to memory for thus expressed, the mind will be enabled to understand them more easily. And I feel like that is how more treats like all his characters, totally. his like his, little elements all of these elements he just goes through and tells you what each of them are right before he starts to move them basically like he explains like it's like if you're teaching somebody chess and you're like so this is a pawn it can move this way yeah it's this a, good is a bishop yeah. this can move this way and then by the end of, but by the end of it the person's like okay i didn't remember any of that because <laughs> like it doesn't mean anything because you're not yet playing the game and it's like he explains what all the pieces do and then he starts playing right and that, I think, I mean, like, you know, that's just how he writes. And obviously, like, the, the the like, I don't want to take away from the end product because I think, yeah. like, it is, like, a brilliant book. But holy fuck, does it really <laughs> require a lot of attention and patience to get into it. Yeah, I think that's a good reading. It does, uh, he is demanding and he expects that you have done the reading and that if you haven't, you will do it. Yeah. Like, there's little bits in the, you know, Brick mentioned the appendix, which is, a fascinating read just on its own. Like you can read them separately too. And it's just right. thrilling to see all the work that is put into it. And I should say that reading the appendix and reading about the book also clarifies that more really based most of the stuff on Stephen Knight's book about Ripper. That's right. the, one the final the solution. Most yeah. Yeah. Because it seemed to, that's the goal book, right? Yeah. Kind that's of, the goal yeah. theory for the most part. And yeah. it, I think it gives him the clearest architecture for the story that he wanted yeah. to tell. But then in the, in the appendix, he sort of has a second or like a, a kind of a follow-up chapter an epilogue to the epilogue where he explains the sort of history of ripperology and you know how the theory started and sort right. of how it developed because he's read all of it obviously and does provide a nice you know kind of like interesting indictment of true crime essentially he's like this right. is a sick obsession or, I mean specifically so so my wife and I in our honeymoon went to London and oh, we yeah. stayed in Whitechapel and we oh, went wow. on one of those Jack the Ripper tours yeah. there are dozens of right. Jack the Ripper tours even today right and they're all like like this guy had so they, they, they have conventions about Jack the Ripper, and they have these guys, these tour guides are all Jack the Ripperologists, literally. They all, like, read each other's papers, and they submit papers, and they do all this shit. This is for five murders that happened over the course of three months, right? 150 years ago. And it's still, like, it's it's it kind of reminds me of the Salem Witch Trials. Like, mm. if you go to Salem, you're like, okay... Oh, the, there's actually only like twelve witches that were murdered, right? And it happened over one like crazy summer, you know, in seventeen whatever, right? Uh, but historically, its its footprint is like so enormous, yeah. Like it's what Salem is still known for to this day, and it's like it's it was basically like 
one summer. That this <laughs> right, yeah. And like a momentous sort of shift in history yeah. for those actions. And yeah. there's good reason, obviously. These are you know, grave injustices. Yeah. And there are murders. But part of also the difference between Salem and Whitechapel would be that the, the unsolved nature of right. the river killings, right? Like there's the fact that you will never know. And he more says that in the in the gull catching comic at the very end he's like no one's ever gonna figure it out like this is right. pointless but we're drawn to try to because we want to have that sense of right order in the universe that's just not there for right. us which is also like what i think it's also interesting in the in the appendix like because he calls out his own sense of order so one of the things about this book that is kind of striking is that every single detail feeds into the theory yeah so like every single thing that everybody so you know he'll come across a thing that's like Oh, so and so saw some guy down the alley like earlier that night, and that will be part of this the story. Like, there is not a right. single detail that's just like, well, that that was a red herring. Right. There's zero red herrings. Like, they all go. In. And then in the at, at, in the appendix, he's like, obviously this isn't true. Like, there's right. a shitload of red herrings in here. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, there's so there's there's so many. It's like it's like life is you know mostly meaningless right and mostly random and mostly coincidence and then the attempt to like make it all make sense in one coherent thing is obviously like bad and wrong but right. I, but i still did it well, well yeah <laughs> but like, also like yeah. bad and wrong but also human nature like we have right. to try to find some sort of story behind all this stuff right it's what ends up happening a little bit too in his uh, later series league of extraordinary gentlemen where he's just like read all the books and just tries to right. like what if they were all real and they all happened at the same time? Right. <laughs> it's like he finds some little corner for every like little minor character he's ever encountered, which is it must be just how his mind works, which is fascinating. Right. But also, yeah, it can be an overwhelming reading experience. It yeah, it kind of feels to me like it is the literary equivalent of like a Harry Houdini act. Mm. It's like it's like okay, like especially when he uses the source material, like because mm. the Watchmen, I feel like was so much cleaner because it's just based on nothing it's like he can go wherever he wants with it right and this is like it's based on a thousand sources and they they're all like interweaving and all this shit so it's almost like how can i make a dramatic book when when everything is sourced when everything's right. laid out and like fit it all together and still make it you know dr dramatic and compelling and it's it's almost like you know a magician like handcuffing himself and putting him in putting himself in a straight jacket and then yeah. he's like plunged into the water and he has to get out of it it's like you try to make it as hard for yourself as possible right and still manage to like slip out of it yeah like still pull the trick off and that's what makes it yeah. sort of spectacular a lot of connections between from hell and watchman in terms of the play with time as well right lots of sort of disordered chronology and william gull is sort of like has a not a parallel but sort of like a cousin figure in dr manhattan from watchman and they both are kind of unstuck in time right they sort of kind of gull doesn't right. do it of his free will like dr manhattan does but he does sort of like move around in time. Like his introduction, to the chapter two, when you meet Gull as a boy, the first nine panels are all black, and it's just quotes from across the rest of the book. And you're like, "What the fuck does any of this mean?" Like these right. quotes, these it captions mean, mean anything. nothing. Well, when you're later reading. means a lot, but at the <laughs> yeah. moment you're like, "I don't know what this yeah. is. I know it'll be important later, but I can't figure it out quite yet." Right. But then he gives you the key because at the end of that chapter, one of the quotes comes back. And you're like, "Oh, I get it now. This is yeah." I've just like read this, but you have to read it basically twice. Like yeah. That. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's the part where he pops up in the, like the 1990s office building. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I had to look at it a few times. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. And he's like, what the fuck? Like, this is, this is the future. This is insane. But also yeah. he's like, I did this. This is my, like, this is my big job. Yeah. That last is, that's not the last chapter. Maybe it's the second last chapter where he dies and he like, like basically goes on his like journey to hell or whatever happens. Like he just like visits and goes around time where he like inspires William Blake to make that painting. And he like inspires other serial killers, right. all that kind of stuff. And he's, and then he kind of becomes part of the darkness. Yeah. Like, so like the book talks a lot about this, like pattern of these kind of unspeakable acts in it and quote unquote rising through the centuries. Yeah. And it's like, it's an asymptote like approaching. So it's like, it gets, it's getting exponentially faster. And he's like, did he? So there's the the other Ripper that happened in like 1788, yeah. and then there's the the next one happens in like 1935. Yeah. It's like you know, 50 years later, and then 25 years later, and then 12 years later, and then six years later, and then it's just fucked. Yeah, like everything's fucked. Yeah. and Gull kind of becomes the embodiment of that 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 thing, that yeah. evil that is like sweeping through 
quote, like rising through the centuries, getting faster and faster. Yeah. He says he's God, but he's really like anti-God. He's like doing like, the right. worst thing. Yeah. And inspiringly, there's like, that's another detail where you have to know about like Peter Sutcliffe and like other serial killers from England who were, would have been well known in the 80s, but are a bit less known now probably. Right. Unless you're a true kind Yorkshire kind of Yorkshire Ripper. Yeah. All he's stuff. the Yorkshire Ripper, right? Yeah. And they're yeah. like, they're dropped in there with no reference. You just have to like right. pick it up. Um, but then, of course, the appendix reveals a lot of detail too. Yeah, that's the favorite. My favorite part of the comic is that chapter because it's just thrilling. Right. Um, and it's the, to see him do it again and to do it with such bravado. And the, the art helps as well. The art by Eddie Campbell is so expressive in that sequence too. Yeah. I never felt lost. I just felt like I was being whisked through all these details. And it was just like that right. sort of horrible, qua- like queasy culmination of all this stuff, all this evil. And you're like, yeah, it's just that's just it. Like there's, there's no happy ending, there's no solution, there's just evil is, is perpetual and, and yeah. we're stuck in it. Yeah. Bracing. Yeah. And then there's also details like <laughs> that I feel like Alan Moore just kind of can't resist. Like yeah. there's the part where Adolf Hitler is conceived yes! <laughs> on the same night as the first Jack the Ripper murder. And you're like, when you read it, like, Brick, did you even understand that that was what was happening? Because like, no, I didn't. I, I didn't know that until I read the appendix and it was like, that what the fuck? Yeah, <laughs> like, it's, it's it just cuts to like this German couple having sex, and then she's like, "Oh God!" Yeah, <laughs> kind of, and then like the evil that Gaul is bringing into the world like goes into her. That's womb. Some Twin Peaks shit. Yeah, yeah, it totally is. It's but it's also Twin like it never comes back up. It's just like, yep, I, I thought this I, was I weird missed, because I missed it, that completely. I yeah. yeah, 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 because it's not it's not like called out in the book. It's just like, oh, this is a this is a German couple that you know conceived a child the same night and you have to really you have to really like it's not it's not at all like spelled out no let's talk a bit about the that really gruesome scene yeah so the the final killer when he finally kills marie the one that takes up like four pages yeah yeah it's It's one of the most visceral things i've ever seen in my entire life yeah Yeah. it's really gross for for like black and white sketches like yeah that was more kind of affecting than you know yeah, it, most super bloody gore movies or whatever. Right. There was something about it that was just it made my stomach. Well, yeah, so so she's the last one, right? Yeah, yeah. And he kills her in her house. So it's the first one that he doesn't kill her on. He doesn't kill the woman on the street. And he like so, takes his time. Yeah, he has like hours, and he just he mutilates her, and it's like it's all sourced too, which is fucked. But it's like a hundred percent from the medical reports it's like right. this is what happens and he, he like yeah you know i mean it's it's really great he like cuts parts for off and like i don't really want to get into it much more than that but yeah but yeah that's so that's almost like i mean so if you go go into it as a murder it seems like that is what he wanted to do with all of them but like on the street he doesn't he doesn't have the time to do that and he, he has to, like, get away. Well, and he has these, like, expressions in the murder where he's, like, in a trance, basically, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, compared to the previous killings where he sort of, like, does them a bit more, I don't know, clinically. Right. In this one, he's he's sort of in a state. And he's, even in this section, going back in time, here's apparently he's in an right. office building with, like, people on computers. But he's also, like, with the body that he's just cut up. Right. So he's sort of, like, he's sort of going through his kind of transfiction here. But yeah, the way it's done, and we should also say the nine-panel grid of it all makes it even more disturbing because it's just very deliberate, right? It always has this kind of like clockwork, yeah. like always this structure, always this feel that makes it, the pacing is really slow, which makes it all the more brutal. And yeah, it just gets blacker and blacker. Yeah. Um, the sketches are, the lines are a bit less precise. There's more smudging. It's really, it's a, it's a brutal section yeah. for sure. And I think that's that's also like probably the strength of the, the drawing style is that yeah. it's uh, it, it emotes really well. It just doesn't, you know keep faces straight like there's that sure yeah between faces but yeah. like when you get into a scene like that it's really affecting i do feel like that is is part is one of the things that makes me not believe this theory as much because mm. like the entire so alan moore spends like a chapter or more on goal like why goal wants to do this like why right. this guy who was knighted he was queen victoria's personal physician yeah he was like he was a a high up in the freemasons like why the fuck would he want to just murder five people uh specifically prostitutes and so it does an entire chapter about 
why he would want to do this and his theory for it. And like, that's the, that's the Netley chapter, right? It's right. like when he's going around and he's like explaining that these five murders are form a pentagram and like these places they're they're near these places that are all around the Hawksmore chapel and right. this, which is the center of it. And like all this Freemason shit. And it's like, okay, that's not the same guy that commits that last murder. Like that's right. not, that's not the guy that sits there for, for four hours and mutilates this woman. It's like, that's somebody who wants, you know, a specific, who thinks like this specific thing is, and I mean, it's because he has a stroke and he hallucinates right. and he like has this, he has this brain damage. Right. And that's, that's why he feels compelled to do that. But that doesn't, it just doesn't feel like the same compulsion that, that makes the, the killer and the last murder do it. Yeah. To that and degree. it makes that chapter kind of scarier even because you're, this is like the rationality, whether you, I mean, obviously no one agrees with it or we don't agree with it, but like, Gull's rationality is like, well, at least he's he has a plan. He knows what he's trying to accomplish. It's insane. He like has right. a sort of like a, a sort of like a perverse logic to it. Whereas the last killing, there doesn't seem to be a lot. He's just like randomly cutting bits up and right. burning them. It's just, it's a whole. It feels like someone out of control. But that's right. because like you're saying, he's having this like fit through his stroke and is also like traveling through time and seeing you know historical things and sort of like understanding what his work actually is. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, Brick, you said you didn't like it. I, I, it's more like I didn't enjoy it. Like right. I. Yeah. It's not an entertainment. You know, in the way. No. That, and you the, know, the, I movie. the keeping the characters apart in the beginning really. Yeah. Threw me off. If if I had, you know, part of that's my failure as a reader. I guess I should have flipped through the book. If I had known that appendix was there before, I didn't literally didn't find it till halfway through the book. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I, also that like, uh, I don't, I don't know if that should be necessary you know to understand i don't either i mean i don't think it should but if i had known it was there i would have i got i got so frustrated and i was like do i need to take notes on these people's names and i was like i'm not going to do that right and and so i ended up starting like flipping through the book and that would also be kind of frustrating because half of them don't have that big role to play they just come in for like one bit it's also really wordy right for like there's a lot of there's a lot of words for 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 a graphic thing which is not a bad thing it's like probably the most literary graphic novel novel i've ever encountered but it yeah when i could i just couldn't get my bearings and so then i started to just basically skip the words and kind of view it through pictures and kind of enjoy the art and kind of keep up the story that way and then once you know chapters five or six or wherever uh, i was able to slow down and like okay i found the thread but even then, I, it had already. Then I was just like, I got to get this done to re- talk about with you boys. Like, right. if it weren't for right. that, I would not have. Get through. I would have not kept going. Right. Yeah. And also, like, so Alan Moore has a like a history with uh, comics publishers. Hates comic publishers. And, yeah. And I'm like, he's gotten screwed out of a lot of money from, from these books. But at the same time, can you imagine how infuriating it would be to publish this fucking book? And like, you're publishing it one issue at a time. Those first four. Four or five chapters probably took three years. Like yeah. They came out across three three or four years, and nothing is happening yet. And it's right. like, motherfucker, like, what is this? <laughs> like, get to the fucking point. So I can understand, like, why it, like, you know, and then there's a weird publication history, right? Like, it was published in one place first, and then it had to go somewhere else yeah. and like, do all yeah. the shit. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things I think that, Probably it would be difficult during the process, but to have produced yeah. a masterpiece after is like, well, it was worth it because yeah. this is like a work that will last, I think, forever. Like, it's, yeah. it's just such a strong statement. Which which shows, like, so I think that's the the quintessence of it is to the two sides of Alan Moore's personality. One yeah. is, like, at the end of it, he does, like, create something that's pretty incredible and he also just refuses to have any consideration for the production, the logistics, <laughs> the reader, you yeah. know, like the actual, you know, that's also part of creating something, you know, like sure. if this was a movie, this would never have been finished because it, because there would have been a production budget and right. like that, because it's a comic book, there's just two guys and it's like, they can work on it. Right. There's, it costs basically zero. Yeah. And in that, and, and it's only because of that, that it, exists like it's because which i mean like it's kind of true with all books it's like they have no production budget and that's why a lot of them yeah i mean it's a a passion project right this is obviously a work of passion he even describes in the 
in the comic afterwards that he wanted to do something kind of like around this idea. I wasn't sure it was going to be Ripper, but something like that. Right. And it ended up because it was like just the most, it was coming up on the anniversary and it seemed apt to him, I guess, to do it. Right. But yeah, it's it's the fact that he's friends with Eddie Campbell and Eddie Campbell yeah. liked, the, liked the idea, thought it was like worthwhile work and put time into it while also publishing his own stuff too. Right. Um, that's part of the thing about comics too is that there's no money in comics anymore, especially now, but right. even not then, right? So it's not like they're doing this with promise of grand financial reward, they're doing it because they they just want to make this work, right? And because they believe in the project, and you have to respect that. But yeah, I mean, definitely, this isn't. It's not like you know, it's not like a Batman where it comes out every month. Like it's gonna right. even Watchmen. There was a year wait between Watchmen eleven and Watchmen twelve. Like right. you were on tenterhooks for a whole year. What do you see? The resolution of this like epic story was. So there is definitely that, but but Watchmen, I feel like, is constructed in a much more reader friendly way. Like because yeah. You know, the characters are introduced within arcs that they, you know, uh, it's not just like, here's this person, here's this person, here's this person. Yeah. Some of them will be important. Some of them will play minor roles, but you have to remember all of them. And, you know, it's not not quite the same onerousness. Well, but you're kind of right, but there is a a similar pattern in the first four to five issues of Watchmen are just each character's individual intro, right? Warshad goes to meet all of them. He meets... Night Owl, he meets Dr. Manhattan, he meets Sally Jupiter, whatever. And so, like, they get kind of their backstory. And it wasn't until chapter five or six that the story kind of kicks off, similar to this. Yeah. But it's shorter, A. Yeah. And also, like, this is not, I mean, I the art in here is gorgeous. This is not a preference at all. I'm just saying that the color art of Dave right. Gibbons makes yeah. it easier to track differences, right? It, One character yeah. is big and blue. That's easier to pick right. out. Yeah, than it makes everyone a big here. difference. You also yeah. have Rorschach grounding that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Whereas here, you don't really have, I guess, your grounding character is. Is Mary Kelly, maybe, or, or Gull, Gull <laughs> which is yeah, a horrifying is thing gross. to experience. Yeah. Yeah. Or, I mean, he kind of tries to make it Aberline, but Aberline is just not involved for not Yeah, until he comes in super late. Yeah. And he's, I mean, a really interesting character, he but he's not. He doesn't know what's happening. So it's yeah. like, it's tough to, like, make the guy who just doesn't. Or I guess, I guess by the end he does know and they cover it up. Yeah. He and Lee figure it out, yeah. at least. They're like, they realize that they were right yeah. and they're both horrified oh, right. and they, they go, sell Yeah. Out. So that's, that's like one of the fictional things. It's like Aberline and Lee's confront Gull and Gull immediately uh, uh, confesses it. And his wife is like, I knew it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he gets put in the same asylum essentially. Yeah. And then dies of a stroke while people fucking <laughs> Which is like, so that whole part is fictional. Like the confession yeah. and everything is fictional. And then he also. Also, so the other detail that I think makes me really not believe this theory is that uh, Queen Victoria is like yeah, intimately involved, like cold yeah. blooded. Yeah. yeah, and so she she like okay is it because she's like ah, who gives a shit? Right, it's worth protecting the <laughs> yeah. power, right? Yeah, so it's like okay, yeah, you you want to kill five prostitutes to you know cast a spell? All right, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. And then so then there's like a bunch of those like little historical details. Like there's a little thing where. There's a real note that's like sourced from Queen Victoria, written after the first murder, but before the second murder, when she refers to the murders, right? Plural, and Alan Morris like she was probably referring to this other one, right? But he's taking it as her being involved, and like, and and then Gull presents that to like the guy, the Freemason who runs the police, right? And as like Queen Victoria is like signing off on on this whole thing. Right. But then like later she does, she's like still does like protect everybody. Yeah. That's she's it. okay with it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we mentioned this a little bit before on the way up here that in the appendix, you learn a little bit more about how more well, he's obviously, like we said, he's researched everything. He knows all the details. He knows all the players and how they fit together. And he's willing to nudge little details for, for his story, right? He's, he's perfectly willing to say, well, this isn't exactly true, but it fits here. It makes for a more entertaining story. So we're just going to go ahead and do that. Like I find it kind of, you know, interesting, right? And yeah. it, it's charming too, to hear him talk about it. And you see like, oh yeah, this is just like his story instincts are strong and he knows what's going to work. And he, he just knows it's going to be okay. If I just like fudge this a little bit and people will forgive me and it's not history anyway. So yeah, I kind of like that part of it too. Yeah. Well, it sounds like overall this is a successful recommendation. Yeah. Mostly. I mean, I'm glad I read it. Yeah. I just don't want to read it again. <laughs> it's funny that both of you said that because this is my second read through. I read it when I was in college and didn't touch it ever again until now. And I had always kind of thought about it. I should, but I just was like, yeah, I don't know. It was kind yeah. of heavy. And I'm glad I did. When I finished this this second read, I wanted to go back for a third immediately. 
Right. I do think there is something about like an endless feast in here, but you have to have the stomach for it, and it's not always going to be the case. Yeah. And it's also, it's definitely a book that, ironically, like, I don't want to read it again, but like, if you do read it again, then that's when you get all of those. Yeah. That's when it's like Alan Morris, like, you see it from his perspective, and it's like, oh, here's all these guys who, you know, fit into things. Yeah. It's like just like Watchmen. Like the first time I read Watchmen, I was in middle school, maybe even younger than that. I was like, "Wow, this is a lot." I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if I really understand this. I just kept rereading it over and over because there's so much to find in it. And then it wasn't, you know, even the last time we read it together for the podcast, I was having new revelations. So it's right. like, it will always reveal more to you. Ha ha! Always reveal more to you. Yeah. All right. So a couple couple last things I just want to mention. Okay. So the uh, in the Dance of the Gull Catchers, one of the interesting things was that uh, uh, Sickert's descendant. Yeah. Is the one who basically tells the guy who wrote The Final Solution, which is this is based on, tells him all these details that Sickert, that his, you know, great grandfather passed down through their family. Yeah. Retracted it immediately. Yeah. Like immediately was like, I just made that up. Yeah. And then he, and then like the guy who wrote it, I think, died. And then well, he, he renounced and then he became a, he joined the Bogwan. He became one of the people in that. That documentary, Wild Wild Country, uh, okay. he became one of the Bogwan whatever people, changed his name to something like yeah. that, and then died of a like cancer or something like that. Right, the guy who wrote the book. Yes, even that. Yeah. yeah, so then, and then the Sickert, the, the descendant that told him about it, became the beneficiary, and then yeah. he was like, and then he re-upped, and he was like, oh no, okay, that was true. Yeah. Now that I'm getting money for it, yeah. Yeah, what a piece of shit. Yeah, <laughs> which is also, like, that's wild to know that about this book. And still base your, yeah, your thing around it, because like, it's like, oh, oh, this is some shit that this dude made up, but I, but I mean, I guess then like, you know, Alan Moore looked into it and, um, and like all the historical pieces kind of fell into this, yeah, thing. And, he kept he says yeah. in the place it makes sense. You can see why it makes sense, but also it's definitely not the case. But he also even says like, right. I couldn't resist the chance to criticize the Masons. Like, right. it's like it was, right. that was a good, that's what I wanted to do. So this worked out perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Masons do not come out well. Cause like no. every time, every time a uh, girl is about to get caught, he just says like, who will watch out for the widow's son? And the other guy goes, motherfucker, yeah. God damn it. Now I have to help you. Cause you said the secret code. Like a, a secret passcode to like yeah. Trump all hesitation or objection. Yeah, yeah totally. Uh, and then, so then the other last little detail is did you guys think it was crazy how late things stay open in Victorian England? <laughs> it was constantly like, and then it was one a.m. and he went down to the shop and it's like the fucking shop is open. <laughs> it's like yeah, they were coming back from the bar, which was open until three thirty, and it's like to justify all that whale oil. <laughs> yeah, I mean it was crazy how many things, how many witnesses there were, just because like yep, they were up. Yeah, they were up when this guy, and then it's like. You know, they would kill somebody. The Jack the Ripper would kill somebody at like five forty-five in the morning. Right. It immediately like four people would. Yeah, see there's him. a crowd. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's like cops coming by and shit. And it's like, man. But it also makes it even more mysterious or surprising than that we they didn't ever figure out who did it because there's so yeah. many people who were just like around and alert seemingly. Or but I guess maybe not, maybe not alert, but they're all drunk. But like, right. There's yeah, that was interesting too. All the details about the life of of being a sex worker in that time were right. really fascinating. Sad, obviously, and just being in Victorian England. Yeah, like yeah. All of the yeah, all of that those kind of details. And also, I th- I thought it was telling with Netley too, like because like you were saying, like he Gull treats ne- Netley as you know an idiot. And yeah, he's like he's like well you're a peasant, so he like, makes one to his face. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and Netley understands everything that's happening it's right. just that he gets he like the promise of becoming a freemason it would literally change his life right. and it's like so he would go from just working these fucking 16 hour days like driving this carriage to working like a good job right it's not even like he wouldn't be a nobleman or anything but he would get to he would basically have a living wage yeah exactly and he would have a decent like work-life balance and that is enough for him to like help help this dude fucking commit murder after murder and like keep his mouth shut which is yeah which is crazy yeah yeah and just like another indictment of the whole system but oh, yeah, yeah totally yeah there was that interesting detail about the one he quotes her in the appendix it wasn't one of the the woman who was women who's murdered but some other like famous 
notorious sex worker from the time that she only ever was penetrated like twice successfully. Like it was always oh, through right. the tops of her yeah, thighs. Yeah, there was the whole thing where like they fucked the gap at the top yeah. of your thighs instead of actually getting their dick in. Yeah. Yeah, which is that's that's pretty crazy. Yeah. Wow, I never had heard of that and it was interesting. That's uh, that's how you have sex with prostitutes <laughs> in Japan. Is it yeah. really? True story. Well, not true story, but... True <laughs> story! <laughs> wait, true. wait, do you mean it's true bro bro. or it happened to you? <laughs> it did not happen to me, but no, in Japan, uh, sex workers, like, prostitution's legal as long as you don't press, uh, penetrate. Interesting. So there's lots of folds being uh, Friction. so frictionalized. Sure, sure. Isn't that Frickage. Japanese porn, too, like, blurs out the penetration? Yeah, yeah you can't I think show it's it. the same deal, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, is that... Do you have other notes, or is that... I think that's it. How's that for okay. a segue? <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, a nice way to end this Japanese hookers. I, yeah, so recommended, I think, overall, uh, at least for me, and certainly something you go yeah. enjoy it too, Brick less so, but but recognizes the, the sort of import, maybe. But yeah, definitely not an easy read, for sure. It definitely takes your some time. There are great editions out there, for sure. Top Shelf has been publishing this forever, so go get one of those. They're really nice. Um, there is a movie adaptation, which is horrible. We're going to watch it and do a commentary episode for the bonus sometime soon, so look out for that if you are a Patreon subscriber. Probably the same week that this goes out yeah probably so if you aren't a patreon subscriber go ahead and do that go to patreon.com slash yakbabies and subscribe to our patreon for one dollar a month you can get access to all the bonus content there there's tons of stuff we we fill it up with games and there's bro to bro conversations there's things like the commentary tracks we did one before for the movie of the road which uh maybe don't listen to it because it's hard to listen to but these will be better because we're not doing we're not going to have commercials it'll really yeah, help commercial free version yeah get your finger on that up. pause button <laughs> exactly <laughs> And we also do like uh, candy tournaments and there's a whole separate podcast about 101 Ghost Jokes Ranked where we lose our minds. Really good stuff there. Go check it out for that $1. 101 Pickle Jokes. Yeah. If you want to email us, please write us at jackbabiespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts there. We're still on Twitter and we'll be on, I don't know, like TikTok soon probably. We're going to talk about that later. I didn't tell you guys we're going to discuss being on social media. probably Instagram, but... Yeah, we'll figure it out. We'll find some social media place to find us. I'm all, uh, I'm all set with Twitter. It's got to go. Yeah, it's... Well, probably I'm not stomach be. for it anymore. Yeah. Till then, Yak Babies, backing off. The Yak Babies would like to thank all the loyal listeners, and especially their patrons, both past and present, including Michael, Bonnie, Sebastian, David, Roger, Kathleen, Bailey, Andrew, Gilbert, and William Howard Taft. Oh.